When you hear the phrase full throttle, what, what image comes to mind? I'll tell you what comes to my mind. I see a, an airplane barreling down the runway with the pilot holding that throttle as full forward as he can to get that plane off the ground. I see a sports car on a straight stretch with the driver mashing the accelerator to the floor. I see a racehorse, nostrils flared, ears pinned back, sweat, mud flying as he rounds the turn and heads for the finish line. I see a mother juggling the needs of three kids under the age of five, none of whom have had a nap. <laughs> Full throttle, completely sold out. When I think of that phrase, I also think of the first century church and their genuine passions to carry out the good news of the salvation we find in Jesus Christ, to love the Lord with all their hearts and to share His story. Now, I'm not exactly sure what's happened in the last 20 centuries, but I sense that our passion to live out the purpose that Christ has created His kingdom for has waned a bit. Uh, some days it feels more like a Sunday afternoon drive than it does full throttle. And there are those today who say that the church is, is done, that its best days are behind her, that she is going to fade off into the distance. Now, I realize that there are issues and problems and concerns. Our newest generation, less than 15% attend church on a regular basis. One out of every six Christians, that's about 16%, give absolutely nothing to the to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. The median adult attendance per church service in America last year was 90 people, the median attendance. Hundreds of churches here in America permanently close their doors every year. Those, that's true. I, I understand that. But those who focus on such st statistics are the glass half-empty kind of people. And, and, and if you're here and you're one of those glass half-empty kind of people, you just want to throw up your hands and shake your head and decide that the church, uh, you know, is just fading away. But I, I'm here to tell you this morning, don't lose heart. I believe the church's best years are still ahead of her. I believe the church is poised on the brink of history to make an incredible difference that we can't even imagine at this point in time. And, and here's why. The church is God's only plan. That's it. God didn't create plan B. He created the church to take the message of Jesus Christ into a lost and dying world, and he has no other plan. It is God's church. I believe he will sustain the church. I believe he will empower the church. I believe he will use the church to make a difference in this world. It's the only plan he came up with. Jesus said, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, Peter, upon the rock of that confession, in other words, upon the fact that I am the Christ, on that rock, I will build my church and not even the gates of death and hell itself will be able to overcome it. So the church is here to stay. And so I want you to, I want you to think about it from a glass half full perspective because not all the news is bad. While there are hundreds of churches that close their doors here in the, in the States. There are hundreds of churches that begin brand new every year here in the States. And thousands of churches are springing up around the world. Today, we have some of the largest churches that uh, we've ever seen and witnessed in modern history. In his book, Witness Essentials, Dan Meyer lists some encouraging statistics about the growth of the church around the world. Now, 
stop and think about this. In 1900, just a little over 100 years ago, in 1900, no, Korea had no Protestant church. Today there are over 7,000 churches in just the city of Seoul, South Korea. And one of the largest churches in the world is in South Korea, has over 100,000 members. At the end of the 19th century, the southern portion of Africa was only 3% Christian. Today, it is 63% Christian, while membership in the churches in Africa increases by 34,000 people every day on the average. In India, 14 million of the 140 million members of the untouchable caste have become Christians. That's 10%. More people in the Islamic world have come to Christ in the last 25 years than the entire history of Christian missions. In Islamic Indonesia, the percentage of Christians is now so high, around 15%, that the Muslim government will no longer print the statistics. In China, it is estimated that there are now more self-avowed disciples of Jesus than members of the Communist Party. Even the most conservative estimates suggest that China will soon have more Christians than any other country. Across the planet, followers of Jesus are increasing by more than 80,000 per day. 510 new churches are established every day. And you say, well, yeah, but that's not here in America. Well, no, it's not here in America totally, but according to the latest statistics from the Washington Times, overall church membership in America is up a half a percent. Now you say, well, that's not very much, yeah, but it's up. It's not down. Almost a half of the American population considers themselves to be members of a church. It's up. The news is good. What's more, believers in the church make the greatest difference in times of crisis. They are the most generous with benevolent giving, the most accepting of other people, the most encouraging to those who are struggling. Why? Because God didn't create a sterile institution, a social club with membership dues, or a civic organization that wears unusual hats. He created a living, breathing organism. It's not an institution, it's an organism. Not exclusive, but inclusive. The Bible says, whosoever will may come. It serves a perfect Lord, but the church itself is not perfect, so every one of us would feel welcome here at home. It has the grandest purpose in the world to tell others about the eternal grace and forgiveness of God in Christ. It does what the United Nations cannot do. It makes believers from every nation and culture truly one. It does what civil rights legislation struggles to do. It makes believers of every race and color truly equal together. Where else can you turn to find genuine forgiveness and acceptance? Where can you go to find a reason worth living for and a reason worth dying for? Where else can you seek a greater hope than that of eternal life in the presence of God in a place like heaven? Don't tell me the church's best days are in the past. If you believe that, you're about to miss out on the greatest adventure of your life because I think the church is headed for great days ahead. Not easy days, but great days over the next few weeks, we're going to explore the character, heart, and purpose of the first century church. And we're going to do that through the book of Acts. Now, do you realize this morning that the, the New Testament has but one history book? And it is the book of Acts, and Acts chronicles the birth of the church through much of the first century to give us an idea of who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to serve, and how we're supposed to act. So, 
let's begin by taking a peek at the early part of the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts. If you have your smartphones or your tablets, you can turn there or you can follow along on the screen in just a few moments. But I want to start you off at the beginning with just a, a brief survey. Chapter 1, Jesus had told his apostles to wait. Now when Jesus ascended from this earth to go back to heaven, he said, wait in Jerusalem. Now that's hard to do when you don't know what's going to happen and the apostles didn't really know what was going to happen. But they waited those 10 days and after that the Holy Spirit came upon them and uh, Peter got up and he preached uh, on that uh, Sunday and it, uh, it started a, a, a great uh, movement. Now most people don't stop to realize that the church actually began on a holiday a party day, a celebration. This holiday was called Pentecost, and it took place 50 days after Passover, thus the name Penta, Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. And it was the celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest that had just come in. And so it was a great day. They gathered together, families together. They celebrated the harvest. They, say, they gave blessings to God. It's kind of like our celebration of Thanksgiving without the football. That was what was taking place in Jerusalem, all right? And on that day, the church begins, and I think it's an incredible day for the church to begin because the church's purpose is all about harvest. Not the harvest of wheat, but the harvest of souls. What better day for the church to be born? By the way, next Sunday, May 19th, is actually Pentecost this year. So as you approach this week, be thanking God for the birth of his church. Okay, that's chapter one. Chapter two, God sent his spirit. Peter preached the first sermon about the resurrected Christ, and he challenged people to repent and be baptized. 3,000 did so on that day, and from that day on, people began to come to Christ on a daily basis. Chapter 3, Peter and John are headed up to the temple in the afternoon to pray, and they meet a, a, a lame man who begs and asks for a gift, and uh, this time he's wanting a hand out, but what he gets literally is a hand up. And he asks Peter, Peter says, we don't have any gold or silver, but I'm going to give you what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And he reaches down, grabs him by the hand, pulls him up to his feet, and suddenly this man who had been lame for years is now walking and leaping and praising God, the Bible says, and that draws a crowd. You know, you see a guy who's been lame all of his life and now suddenly he's walking. You get a little bit curious. The crowd draws around and what does any good preacher worth his salt do when there's a crowd? He preaches, sure. And so Peter sees this crowd and he starts talking about the resurrection of Christ again. Chapter 4. After three glorious chapters, the mood changes. The, the number of believers is now up to 5,000, Okay. And the religious leaders are threatened, um, and so they throw Peter and John into prison for a night, thinking that that'll scare them, that'll slow them down, that'll stop their preaching, and it will be a warning signal to all these believers. But it didn't do either one of those things. It didn't upset Peter and John, and it was no warning to the believers. And so the next day, Peter stood courageously before this group of religious leaders, and this is what he said in answer to their question, on whose authority are you saying these things? Now listen to this, Acts chapter 4, verse 8 and following. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. 
He, that is Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Wow. Do you you see what's happening here? Seven weeks ago, This same Peter stood outside where Jesus was being tried by the high priest, warming his hands at the fire, and three times he denies that he even knows who Jesus is. And on this day, stick him in a prison cell, and it just makes him even more courageous. Well, the speech didn't go over too well with the religious leaders, and so they got their heads together. They came back to the apostles in verse 18. They said, Then they called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, you judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Wow, full throttle, sold out, lives on the line. Chapter 5, the apostles are now beaten. For preaching about Jesus. Chapter 6, Stephen, who I believe was one of the first deacons, was arrested and falsely accused. Chapter 7, Stephen preaches and is stoned to death for his faith. He becomes the very first to die for what he believes. He was the first Christian martyr. And when he was dying in chapter 7, verse 59, this is what we read, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Sure do wish that I had that same kind of boldness and courage. Sure do wish you did too. These folks didn't value their lives as much as they valued their faith. And so their example continues to inspire us today. Those early days weren't easy days in the kingdom of God. I've got a feeling the days ahead aren't going to be easy days ahead, but they will be great days ahead if we are courageous and willing to take a risk. We have a divine purpose for this world that challenges us to be sold out for Jesus Christ. Now, folks, there are a lot of good things that we can do as Christians, and we ought to do good things. Feed the hungry, provide clothes for those who don't have enough, visit folks in prison, bring medical assistance to those who are hurting. All good things, but good things done for divine purpose, to open the door to help them understand the person of Jesus Christ. Because you've got to keep this in mind. Food, without knowledge of the bread of life. Medicine, without knowledge of the great physician. is like a Band-Aid on a mortal wound. Just because you feed somebody doesn't mean you've solved their greatest need. Their greatest need is to find Jesus Christ. You may be thinking, hey, the church sounds kind of dangerous. Well, yeah, it was. It was a dangerous place. I I think the church of all generations has been a dangerous place for a lot of reasons. Now, it depends on how you interpret dangerous, okay? A dangerous church would be where the Hatfields and the McCoys are in the same small group. Okay, that'd be a dangerous church, obviously. But that's not the kind of dangerous church I'm talking about. Then there's, there's dangerous churches on the other side of the coin, too. A dangerous church is where the Word of God is dismissed in favor of social acceptability. I don't want to be that kind of dangerous church. 
A dangerous church is where apathy and mediocrity is accepted as the norm. I don't want to be that kind of a dangerous church. A dangerous church is where somebody can compartmentalize his faith so that it does not impact his home life, his business practices, or his moral choices. I don't want to be that kind of a dangerous church. I want us to be a church that is dangerous to the spiritual status quo. I want us to fit the character of John Bishop's book entitled, Dangerous Church, Risking Everything to Reach Everyone. Like Peter and John, who the Bible says they recognized as men who had been with Jesus. Like Peter and John, do people know you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? These men risked everything. Jesus left the kingdom in the hands of 12 men. Only one of them lived to old age. The rest of them all died for their faith. And John was imprisoned and banished to an, an island, a deserted island as a penal colony. John suffered greatly, but the rest of them died for their faith. In the process, they've left behind an example worth following. Now, I know, I know, given the choice of danger or, or security, we would always select security. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a big risky kind of guy. You know, I, I'm not looking for danger around every corner. I'm just pretty content with safety, all right? Um, but, but, but that aside, we, we do take risks every day of our life. You don't think so? Then you drive in downtown uh, Bloomington this fall when the new students come to IU for the fall semester. You'll be taking risk, and you'll understand it a lot clearer at that point in time. Or you go in for surgery sometime. Do these questions go through your mind? I wonder if the surgeon can handle any surprises that come up. I, I wonder if this operating room is sterile enough that I won't get any other kinds of infections. I, I, I wonder if I will react poorly to the medications that, oh well, I, I gotta take the risk. Will that Boeing 767 be safe on this cross-Atlantic flight? But we get on and take the risk. If you go into battle, will you come home from the fight? And yet we take the risks. We risk a lot of things without thinking about it. So why is it? Why is it we are so reluctant to risk a little bit of discomfort, maybe a little bit of embarrassment, to share with somebody else the gospel of Jesus Christ? This past week, our nation was shocked by the story of three girls who had been kidnapped abused beyond words, and held captive for 10 years in a pervert's basement. Tragically, they were not really that far from home, but they were completely lost to those who loved them. Well, what would you think of somebody who said, well, I, I knew they were there nine years ago. I knew what was going on in that basement. I, I just didn't want to get involved. I just didn't want to say anything to offend somebody. What would you think of a person like that? How dastardly. What if I told you this morning, in my office I've got a locked box and I, I'm the only one that knows the combination of that locked box and inside that locked box I have the cure for cancer. But, you know, I, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to get involved. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to suggest that you might want to be cancer-free. You know, and so I'll just keep that locked up. You'd think me the most cruel man alive, and you'd be rightly so. Or what if I said this? Hey, I've got the cure for me. You go find your own cure. You'd think me the most selfish, hideous person alive, and rightly so. 
Here's my question. Do you, do you really believe, really, do you really believe that all of us have sinned? Do you really believe that the penalty or the consequence for sin in our life is eternal separation from God? Do you really believe that heaven is too grand to be missed? Do you really believe that hell is too horrible to be experienced? If you believe those things, then why would you not risk a little bit of discomfort and embarrassment to share with somebody who you know does not know Jesus Christ as Savior how to find life everlasting in Him? How can that be any better than keeping a cure for cancer locked up in your office or knowing somebody who's been kidnapped but not telling their whereabouts? There are eternal consequences to our discomfort now, folks, this message is not intended to be a guilt trip. It is intended to be a wake-up call for me, and hopefully for you, too. But I'm here to tell you, after all these years as a Christian, and after all these years of preaching, here's what sometimes happens, and that is we get in the habit of knowing how to do church. You know what I mean? We just do church. We, that's what you do on Sunday morning. You get up, you come, you, 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 know, you sing a few songs, you listen to the scriptures, you listen to some preaching, you go home, I've done my duty, I have salved my conscience, and I can go on about my, my daily business and life. We do church. I don't want to stand before God one of these days and say, Lord, I did church, but I forgot what the purpose and the mission of the church was. It's not just about getting together as we do. It is about sharing the gospel with others. Time is short. Eternity is long. We got to make some changes. Now, we're, we're going to just take this one simple step at a time. Little steps at a time. Right? I'm not asking you to take on, just, just take a deep breath here, and I'm going to give you a couple assignments for this week, all right? Here we go. This is your assignment for this week. Number one, identify someone in your circle of influence that you know is not a follower of Jesus Christ and start praying for that person every day. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Just pray for that person. Not talk to that person about it. Just pray for that person and pray that God will create opportunities for that person to hear about the gospel. If they are already your friend, you know, friends sometimes go for weeks without talking or seeing each other. Well, call them up this week. Or, or send them a note this week, or send them an email, or a text, or something, and, and just check in and say, I was thinking about you this week, just wondering how you're getting along, what's going on in your life. If you're pretty good friends and they know you're a Christian, you might just ask, is there anything going on in your life that I could pray about for you? That might open the door. Or if they're local, ask them, say, hey, let's go get ice cream and, and, uh, and catch up on, on the news, what's going on. In other words, be a friend. And if they're not already a friend, start reaching out in a friendly way to get acquainted. Learn their names, their, their hobbies, their likes, their dislikes. Begin building a relationship. Okay, that's your assignment. Here's the thing to avoid. Everybody listen. Are you with me right now? This is not a project. Okay? I see some of you taking notes and thinking, okay, I've got my, I've got my marching orders. I'm going to go out this week. <laughs> this is not a project. Nobody wants to be a project. I don't want to be anybody's project. I do want to be somebody's friend. And I do want somebody to care enough to be my friend. And I do want to be in relationship with people who genuinely care about me, and I care about them. That's what you're about. Because if it's just a project, it won't 
it, it doesn't matter. It won't work. But if it's somebody that you can genuinely love and you want them to find Jesus, it'll work. So be courageous. Take a risk. Full throttle this week. Start praying. Rick Atchley, preacher at the Richland Hills Church of Christ, tells the story of Roman Kaczynski, uh, who was born in Poland during the um, uh, communist rule, who made it to America, and then eventually made it all the way to Maui, Hawaii, and uh, went around with a tent uh, and, a, and a few clothes, trying to do some uh, landscaping work, and he asked if he could just put up his tent in the backyard so he could do some landscaping work, and he uh, happened on to a Christian couple in, uh, on Maui by the name of Brewer and Amy Hong, and uh, instead of allowing him to put up his tent in their backyard, they said, why don't you just come in and, and uh, take a room in our house, and so he did, and eventually they led him to Christ, and now Roman Kaczynski is a strong witness for the Lord as a matter of fact, I was talking to one of the ladies after uh, the service a few minutes ago. She knows Roman, and she said he is now preaching for that church there on Maui, Hawaii. And uh, when he shared the story of his conversion, he made this observation. He said, I was looking to pull some weeds. They were looking to plant some seeds. That's what I, that's what I want you to do this week. That's all I want you to do this week. Just start planting seeds. You plant, you water, you till, you cultivate, you weed, but it is God that gives the increase. That's living at full throttle. That's being sold out. That's each one, reach one. So let's start together, all right? Let's stop just doing church. Let's be the church.